welcome to What About Us, a podcast about how policies affect rural Tennesseans. I am Sandy Rice. What About Us is part of the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network. Go to tnholler.com, Facebook, and at Twitter to check out the great shows and sign up for the newsletter to get the latest on Tennessee political funny business. There is some national funny business there as well. Our topic today is COVID vaccines. My guest is Dr. John Palisano, who is my neighbor. But more importantly, he is a cell biologist. He has taught biology for many years, including at the University of the South. Uh, But from 1979 to 1985, he was the director of the virology lab at St. Luke's Hospital in Cleveland and also worked with the Cleveland Clinic and Case Western Reserve Hospital researching viral pathogenesis. He has a very long curriculum vita. So let me ask you, Professor, if there is anything you would like to highlight in your career. And welcome, John. Actually, not much. You pretty well covered. I just want to make one little correction. I uh, was in Cleveland, Ohio at a 500-bed hospital where I did pulmonary pathology research for two years and then ran the virology laboratory for seven years. And I taught pulmonary pathology at the medical school the entire nine years and virology elective the first and second year medical students for five years. I also isolate some viruses besides in our hospital, but also for University Hospital and Cleveland Clinic. And then I taught past, sorry, I taught immunology and microbiology for the last 25 to 30 years at smaller arts schools, including University of South for 25 years. So this is a topic near and dear to me. I, I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and even though you're retired now, you still are keeping up because I know you professors, you can't stop. <laughs> no, no, it's kind of inbred after that, that amount of time. Uh, I'm just a wish that we could get back into the lab and do some work, but right now we're excluded from it, which is understanding. Right, right. And did you ever dream that you would be in the middle of a pandemic? No, never. You know, I always worried about something like this halfway because one of the courses I taught when I got to the University of South after 9-11 was bioterrorism. Uh-huh. And I'm, so I guess I can say something political here. I um, am very concerned that no one's talking about bioterrorism right now. Mm-hmm. I know the militaries in general don't think that it's a worthwhile thing to pursue, but they're all still pursuing the research to develop weapons with the idea that they'll also then know how to avoid being attacked by them. Mm-hmm. But it's a pretty well-kept secret right now, and I'm afraid one day people get tired of using uh, the routine weapons and go back to bioterroristic means. So I've always thought that I might be involved someday in uh, some little minor bioterrorist stuff, but I never thought we'd have another uh, Pandemic, and the reason is even before bioterrorism became a con- open concern, the federal government has been spending a lot of money tracking influenza virus in Southeast Asia because they've been afraid for a long time. There's a virus there percolating that if it ever has the ability to move from one human to another the way this coronavirus is, we will be looking at another devastating pandemic like Spanish flu. But other than that, I never thought we'd be sitting in the middle of one for this reason. (laughs) Right. It just shows nature's unforgiving. Well, we did a podcast on March uh, 27th um, at the very beginning of our problems with COVID. And you did mention some the the bioterrorism, you know, angle then. Yeah. But in that podcast, uh, there was a ton of information about how viruses work, how they spread, the difference between a virus and a bacteria, and why COVID-19 is a dangerous uh, pandemic. It, it's worth listening to, uh, which I have done today, or, or after uh, over the last couple of days, except for one thing. John, we didn't encourage the wearing of masks. Mm. <laughs> We talked about hand washing and social distancing, self-isolation, but not masks, except for healthcare workers. And it reminded me that we were so early 
um, in this crisis that those were the things that seemed to be most important. And there was a real fear that if everyone ran out and bought masks, there wouldn't be enough for the healthcare workers. So I think that demonstrates how science uh, changes as more information is obtained, right? Yes, as a matter of fact, someone asked me the other day a question similar to what you did about the virus. And after working with viruses all these years, first as isolating them and then teaching it as part of a microbiology and immunology course, this virus has really thrown the scientific community a screwball. Because yeah. we thought we understood things that we're now learning we don't. And so the scientists have been learning along with the general public. And unfortunately, sometimes the general public thinks then that we're uninformed and we're just giving out information. But the problem is we can't say something until we know it's factual. And, and the articles are just now being published right now. Right. So uh, it's created some real information problems for everyone. Well, the CDC was severely criticized and discredited for changing their minds. And additional studies then showed that any face covering is helpful in controlling the spread of the virus. And of course, have strongly, our science community, medical community, have strongly recommended masks for months now. But many of our leaders and fellow citizens cling to this initial message from March. Well, it's December, and we've lost over 270,000 Americans who are, haven't caught up, even though it's around all the time, mask, mask, mask. And then also we've gone through a period of listening to unsubstantiated and, and old information. In our podcast in March, we talked about uh, drinking sips of water, um, throughout the day to like digest the virus. And I think there was one about blowing a hairdryer up your nose and, yeah. and um, you know, some um, medical uh, treatments that were, you know, at best experimental and uh, bleach and internal light and that type of thing. So we're going to talk about some, some myths a little bit later on, but, but um, today it's, our topic is, the coronavirus vaccines, they're a coming. Like yes. Dr. Fauci says, it's the cavalry. So what, so what is a vaccine? You want to give a little history? and? Yeah, um, sure. <clears throat> well, I want to thank you, first of all, for asking me to come back and join you and thank talk you about vaccines me. and viruses, which I've got a definition for people who want to know what it really is. Because uh, as I said earlier, this is near and dear to my life, both these topics, both viruses and vaccines. I'm an advocate vaccine. I am too. Because I believe in prevention rather than trying to cure things. And antibiotics, as good as they are, are a cure, not a prevention. So I strongly will say now, and we'll finish today, saying when that vaccine becomes available, I hope there's a mad rush to get to it. Cause I firmly believe, and we can talk about this later, that this is going to be a safe vaccine. Okay. Anyway, so how do vaccines work? I could just say in one sentence uh, that it works exactly the same way that the natural virus does, and that is that it stimulates the immune system to produce a virus <clears throat> and produce antibody that recognizes virus antigens. And I wanted to find antigens just real quick in case someone doesn't know. An antigen is a foreign protein or molecule, can be more than just a protein, that the immune system recognizes as not being part of your body. So they say non-self. And so what happens is the vaccine stimulates B cells, which are a special form of white blood cells, to produce antibody that interacts with viral antigen. It also stimulates T cells, which become <clears throat> killer cells, because it's not enough to bind antibody to antigen or the virus, because the whole virus is basically an aggregation of many, many thousands of antigen molecules. But 
you also have to kill the human cells that are harboring the virus as it's being replicated. And that's the role of the T cell. So what we're doing is speeding up the activity of the immune system, but also doing it in a, with a vaccine. You're not using anymore the whole virus like we used to. We're actually using subunits. And the subunits are harmless in and by themselves. Once we get the subunit in, then the cell <clears throat> expresses the viral protein or whatever the subunit is, and the immune system recognizes the foreign and starts going about making those antibody molecules and killer T cells. But you don't develop an infection because the vaccine doesn't contain any particles that can actually replicate an increase in numbers. But by doing that, you alert the immune system that it should know how to fight this infection. And it usually takes seven to 14 days for the immune system to build up enough activity so it can protect you. So by taking the vaccine early before you're exposed to the virus, you're protected when you're finally exposed to it. It's kind of like the flu vaccine. They recommend you take it in late fall, if not a little earlier. So you build up that resistance with antibody to flu virus. So if you happen to come across the flu virus from someone you contract it, say, in January, you've already got the immune system working for you, so you never get sick. You clear the virus before you start showing symptoms. And that's what we're trying to do with these viruses. And later we can talk about what the difference is between the three different vaccines that are being looked at right now in stage three and hopefully be released within the next week or two according to the FDA. Okay, so um, the difference between um, a bacteria and a vaccine uh, and a um, virus is the, and the treatment for bacteria is an antibiotic, which actually the bacteria is a living cell. Correct. And so the antibiotics do different things to destroy that cell, the bacteria cell. Right. Where a virus comes in and takes over our cells. Yes. A virus, and there are some bacteria that are obligatory intercellular parasites, okay, but not many. But everyone recognizes something like a bacterium, a protozoan, a fungal, fungus, you know, like when you get athlete's foot, as living things. There's still an academic issue whether viruses are living or not. And the main reason they say that is of all the criteria of life, viruses don't meet all those criteria. So people like to argue academically, oh, it is a living thing or no, it isn't. The one thing that we do know, though, is regardless of whether viruses are living or not, they're obligatory intercellular parasites that can only reproduce themselves in another living cell. Right, and the host. Right. And, and we're, and, well, animals are the host, but. Well, any living thing can be a host, but right. we're talking about animal viruses today. I mean, even algae get virus infections. Mm -hmm. Fungi get virus infections. No one's immune to the viruses. As a matter of fact, when they say that there's a, trillion bacteria living on our 10 trillion bacteria living on our body the number of viruses on on our body at any given time are much more than even the bacteria that are on there and most of them don't cause any problem because they're not inside the cells so so viruses can be a problem we're just lucky that most viruses aren't as dangerous as some people think they are because they only hear about the bad ones like hiv now this coronavirus, there, we've been getting coronaviruses for hundreds, if not thousands of years, but rarely does we get an epidemic like this. We think in terms of the bad viruses, something like hepatitis or influenza. And this one just happened to hit it right, that uh, it, it's woken us up. We're doing surveillance around the world for influenza viruses to protect ourselves. And this one just kind of slipped in between the cracks because we've known about coronaviruses for a long time, but none of them have been this pathologically dangerous. So the, the, back, uh, the virus actually enters a human cell. It ha it, when it enters a human cell, that's when it's dangerous. As long as it's on the outside of your body, it's harmless. 
so the body can can mount its own uh, attack on a on a virus. Correct. It does all the time. As a matter of fact, most of the viruses that you are attacked by, you never know you had them because it, the immune system's so good at handling them. Right. As a matter of fact, you have two arms of the immune system. One is uh, you're born with, and it works all the time. It doesn't have to be instructor taught lessons, as they like to say. It's called innate immunity. And one of the examples is the amoeboid-like cell that we <clears throat> looks and moves around like a protozoan is circulating in your body constantly. It's called a macrophage. And it's one of the major components, but not the only, of the innate immune system. And usually things can be handled by the innate immune system. But when it's overwhelmed, say by a large bolus of virus, like we're getting with this uh, uh, pandemic, that, well, epidemic that we've got right now, then it needs some help. And that's done by the uh, immune system, which involves B and T cells. Okay. And that takes five to 14 days to crank up fully. And that's why you start showing symptoms because you can't handle the large number of viral particles that are infecting and killing cells at the time. But eventually it catches up and we are able to bring it back under control and the infection resolves. And influenza is no different. A lot of people get pretty sick when they get influenza, but within 14 to 21 days, they're recovered and living their life the way they had, even though they say, wow, that was terrible compared to a head cold, but it's the same thing. It just spreads through the body a little faster and it's a little more potent. So the immune system can handle most infections, but it's being overwhelmed, as, particularly if people have underlying conditions, which I think we spoke about in uh, last... In, in March. Yeah, in March. And that's the big problem, because I'm convinced a lot of people are getting these infections asymptomatically. Remember, I talked about asymptomatic infections, and they have it, but they don't show symptoms. That's why they're testing positive, but they don't feel sick. The problem is we don't know a priori who those people are, so we've got to protect everyone to make sure we all survive the infection and don't spread it. Well, it's the same, you know, with influenza. I mean, some, yeah, some people feel horrible for for weeks. Um, I've never had that because I get a vaccine. And others, and, but others die. Right. Influenza. And I think that's happening in, uh, with COVID as well. But I think it's contributed to uh, kind of a, you know, easygoing attitude. You know, I tested positive, but I, you know, I'm fine. So I can go travel at Thanksgiving or Christmas. So people respond uh, differently, but you, do, but you don't know. And we don't know uh, uh, before. Certain people who are highly susceptible to it, like diabetics, obese people, mm -hmm. people with heart and lung disease. Those people should be really careful what they're doing and where they're going. Because when they get it, they get some severe disease that, as we see now, a lot of them end up dying from. Well, we're seeing even uh, as well survivors, you know, not being able to recover. You know, that we may be on the tip of the iceberg with so many people that have uh, some variation of the disease and then have, you know, whether it's breathing problems or fatigue, you know, ongoing or neuropathies or, um, you know, dizziness. And, and that's a real tragedy to. To, you know, to be, you have a lifetime ahead of you and then have to suffer with these things yeah. for who knows um, how long. Um, and the other reason it's such a dangerous uh, virus is we don't even have any really drugs to treat it with. I know people talk about dexter, I mean, dexamethasone, which is nothing more than a steroid that reduces inflammation. It doesn't cure you of the disease. It just it reduces inflammation to help you in or towards recovery. And then there's remdesivir, which was actually uh, developed for another RNA virus, like coronavirus, but it doesn't really cure you of the virus either from all my readings. All it does is reduce the number of days you excrete virus and have symptoms by about three to five days, and that's if you're healthy to begin with. 
And so this vaccine is very much needed for all of us. And I think one of the things people say is, I don't want the vaccine because I've lasted this long without getting sick. Well, there's a couple of considerations there. One is you just may be a healthy person, not going to get it, but you may be asymptomatic. In other words, a carrier, and you could end up giving it to your loved ones or other people you associate with. And so we still need to exercise precautions not to spread the virus, like masking up, keeping social distances and keeping our hands clean. But we should also think of that once this vaccine becomes available, because I really do think that within seven to 10 days, they're gonna start distributing one or more of those vaccines. And of course, some of us won't get it right away because the first one should obviously go to healthcare workers to make sure the people who have already gotten coronavirus can be treated. And then the other place I hope that they give it is in nursing homes mm-hmm. for the elderly because they're particularly vulnerable to it too. And they're caretakers, so their caretakers don't bring it into the nursing home and give it to their patients or clients, whichever you want to think of it. So this pandemic and the stringent requirements we have for not spreading are not going to disappear in end of December when they say, oh, here's the vaccine because it's only going to be for 20 million people and there's 300 million of us in this country right now. And so we're going to have to wait a little bit longer and take people as judged by their risk at getting coronavirus. Right. And it's, and the, and the vaccine's not a treatment. No, No, it's a prevention. Really. It's, it's most effective for people like you and I who haven't gotten it yet and we have to have it within at least seven to 10 days before we're exposed to the virus or it won't help us either. Right. And that's something else people don't appreciate. They say, well, I took the flu vaccine and got the flu. Well, there's several reasons why you could have gotten it. One is you might've been exposed to the flu too soon before or after you got the vaccine and it's not gonna help you. Second thing is that you might have gotten flu, I mean the flu vaccine, which covers four different variants of influenza, but there's more than four that circulate. You might have been one of the unlucky people to get one of the variants that's not covered in the vaccine. And the third thing is there's a lot of viruses called flu-like symptoms, and you may think you got the flu, but it wasn't the flu in actuality. But the bottom line is if you get a chance to get this vaccine, we can talk about this later too. I think it's going to be a very uh, safe one. Because if you look at the history of vaccination for the last 135 years, 25 years since uh, Pasteur developed the rabies vaccine, we've come a long way in our knowledge, both of the immune system, how viruses infect, and with technological developments that help us develop the vaccine in, what, 10 months now instead of five to 20 years? Which, and that's why some people are afraid to take the vaccine. They say we're rushing into it. No, our technology is moving us forward very quickly right now. Tell us about this messenger RNA technology. Okay, for a vaccine? Uh-huh. Uh, what, what happens is in molecular biology, DNA is used to copy in the cell. You copy DNA, the, the genes carry carried in DNA are copied into messenger RNA because the DNA can't leave the nucleus. So it sends the message for how to make proteins into the cytoplasm where the ribosomes are in the form of a messenger RNA. When the messenger RNA gets into the cytoplasm, ribosomes attach to it and put the amino acids in the proper sequence to form proteins. And then the proteins are responsible for many of the activities of the cell, like structural things like microtubules for cell division, for instance, microtubules for structure of the cell, enzymes in particular. So you catalyze the reactions fast enough to keep the cell alive, different things like that. So what they've done is instead of using a virus like we had in the past that's been attenuated, and all attenuated viruses is one that's been, which has had its, Uh, virulence reduced. In other words, when Pasteur developed the rabies vaccine, rabies invariably killed anyone who came in contact with it. But what what Pasteur did was attenuate the virus. In other words, by 
culturing it in an inappropriate way, he reduced the strength of the ability of the rabies to kill. And that's what we were injecting in the people who were bitten with rabid animals or by rabid animals to keep them from developing rabies. Well, <clears throat> what we're doing with this new vaccine, the new vaccine is we're not even giving you whole virus. They've isolated the messenger RNA from the coronavirus and China was the one that did that for us and published it free for everyone. Mm -hmm. So we don't even use the viral messenger RNA. We're actually synthesizing the messenger RNA in a tube and then we use that in the vaccine. So there's no virus at all involved in the vaccine now. Because some people say, I, if you give me the virus, even if you think it's been killed, I'll get it. Well, you're not getting even the virus messenger RNA. You're getting the synthetic messenger RNA that is identical to the virus's messenger RNA. And then the trick is to get it into the cells. And the way they're doing that is they're combining it. And this is a little hard to talk about because companies don't want to give away proprietary information. But we know that they're packaging it right now, at least the two companies, Moderna and Pfizer, are packaging the viral messenger RNA they synthesize with microparticles. And those micro microparticles are uh, lipoidal in nature for and they serve two purposes. One is they protect the messenger RNA, which is very unstable. We use the term labile for molecules. In other words, it breaks down easily. So the micro, the nanoparticles are stabilizing it. And they also make it possible to get it into the cell because a piece of messenger RNA can't move into a cell on its own. It needs something to help get it across the membrane. And the nanoparticles are helping that. It's packaged inside nanoparticles. And they probably have an adjuvant because most vaccines have an adjuvant. And that's a relatively unsafe um, chemical. And I say relatively because you never know in any given person. But I, as far as I know, most vaccines, if not all of them, have an adjuvant. And the role of the adjuvant is to prevent absorption of the vaccine molecules quickly so the immune system has enough time to see it and begin to make a response to it. So once that gets in, you start making a viral protein off your messenger RNA. And because the virus is an obligatory intercellular parasite, it can't make its own molecules. It can't make its own nucleic acids. It can't make its own proteins. What it does is it uses the apparatus of the cell to make all those molecules, which then assemble in the cell and are released to go on and infect other cells. And so the vaccine by Moderna and Pfizer are messenger RNA, viral messenger RNAs that are being injected into you so they get into your cells so that the protein and the protein that's being made by that messenger RNA is just one. It's the spike protein. And for those who don't know, when they show pictures on TV at newscast all the time and they show a spherical particle, that's the virus. But the little red tip sticks that are sticking out, that's the spike protein. What's the importance of the spike protein besides making antibody to it? Well, the spike protein is called a ligand on the virus because it binds to the receptor on the host cell. Viruses can't enter every cell. They can only enter cells that they recognize the receptor. And again, this coronavirus recognizes ACE2 which is an angiotensin-converting enzyme, too. And so when the spike protein makes contact with the ACE2 receptor, it's immediately brought into the cell. And now it's safe from antibody in the cell because antibodies can't get into the cells either. They're excreted from cells, but there's no way to bring them back in. And that's why you need the uh, T killer T cells to kill any cell that is recognized as holding a viral particle in it so it can't replicate and spread. So the vaccine essentially is nothing more than one messenger RNA molecule that codes for spike protein and whatever else the pharmaceutical companies are using to get that messenger RNA into the cell and to last long enough to be functional. Because the other problem you have is messenger RNAs don't last more than a couple minutes inside the cytoplasm of a cell, even if it's the cell's own RNA. They're turned over or have what we call a half 
very short half-life. Mm -hmm. So they try and stabilize it as much as they can to make sure the cells make the, RNA, uh, the protein. Now, that, those two vaccines by Moderna and Pfizer do it with nanoparticles, as I said. The reason that the production and the okay of, to try and get emergency use by a a AstraZeneca Oxford is taking longer is they're using the somewhat older technology to make the vaccine. They actually took an adenovirus, which causes respiratory disease normally, and stripped it of its nucleic acids. So it's just a capsule that cannot, it can get into cells, but it can't produce a virus infection. But they stuck the messenger RNA, the viral messenger RNA inside that capsule. So they used the virus as a vehicle to get the messenger RNA in instead of using nanoparticles. But once it's in, the <clears throat> viral capsule opens up, releases the messenger RNA into the cytoplasm, and the same thing happens then in those cells as that's happening when you take the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine. Okay, so John, is are we saying then with these technologies that that um, they're they are helping the body, our bodies, recognize the coronavirus, and yep. then are they are they killing the virus, or are they just making it unable to replicate? Well, <laughs> that that. Either one's all right. It depends if you think viruses are living or not. What happens is you're right that it's getting it in there so that so that the body will make antibody. Uh -huh. But the but what they're putting in the vaccine can't make us sick, at least not viral sick. I mean, if you happen to be allergic to whatever the adjuvant they're using, you're gonna get a you know an allergic reaction. Nothing's 100% safe, but you're not going to get that virus infection because there is no complete virus in the vaccines anymore, okay? But what it's doing is it's instructing the immune system to make, to gear up all its stuff. It's priming. It's like a well. You, you know, you push down on the handle and eventually water comes out and you don't have to keep pushing. It just keeps coming. Well, what we're doing with vaccines is we're telling the cells, the body, I should say, because a lot of cells are involved, make antibody and killer T cells to this antigen. And then they become quiescent after a while. They're called memory cells and they just sit around waiting to ever see the same antigen again. And when it does, instead of taking seven to 14 days to crank up, it takes one to three days, which is faster than the virus can replicate and you never show symptoms of the disease. But the virus is still gonna be out there in the world. Oh yeah, there's no way to get rid of the virus in the world. The only one that I know we might have, <laughs> and you can argue this one too, when we developed the smallpox vaccine and started immunizing everyone to smallpox, we essentially eliminated any wild type smallpox virus in the world. Okay. The problem is three or four countries kept stocks of the smallpox virus. And this was possible, by the way, because humans are the only animal that can naturally be infected by smallpox. So if we get rid of it in all people, which we did by 1977, there's no smallpox out in the natural world anymore. I want to just add on uh, about um, side effects when you talked about um, people that got uh, in a flu shot and felt like they had the flu. Um, it's been my understanding that as your immune system, not the, not the virus attenuated or this messenger RNA, that as, you, as your immune system kind of kicks up, you, you cannot feel well. I, I know that um, the um, shingles uh, vaccination, you know, they say, you know, uh, it, it can make you ill. Have you heard that? Do you, do you feel that's true? Does that have a... a well, the, to the best of my knowledge, a little I've been able to read lately, the shingles vaccine will not give you shingles, okay? Right, no, but, no, I know. But, but any vaccine you take... Feel bad. Yeah, and that's possible because as I said at the beginning when I was talking about some of these vaccines, you won't get the, with the new vaccines, you won't get the virus that they're trying to treat you for, but that doesn't mean there's not a component in the vaccine that you may have trouble. Another, let me give you another example. They used to make, and they still do, unfortunately, make a lot of the flu vaccine uh, in embryonic eggs. Right, uh-huh. 
And yeah. so if you're getting that albumin in that vaccine, which may be hard to prevent, if you're allergic to egg albumin, you're going to have a reaction. Okay. Right. The other reason why some people might get sick and think they're getting the virus is, let's remember, just because you're getting your vaccine in October, it doesn't mean you haven't been exposed to influenza before you got the vaccine. And it only takes three days incubation period from the time you're exposed to influenza to come down with a case of flu. It's not like rabies, which takes a month. Okay. And the third explanation for it is that there are a lot of respiratory viruses out there. And just because you get a respiratory, you think you got a respiratory virus when you were vaccinated for flu doesn't mean it was the flu that you got. Right. Do you want to talk uh, a little bit about the trials for the vaccines? Uh, yeah, well, one of them that I'd like to, particularly, unless you have a question, is <laughs> the poor uh, AstraZeneca. Uh, okay. <laughs> and, and the reason I'm saying that, first, let me talk about Moderna and, um, and Pfizer. Uh, Pfizer, thank you. Because it, it's the easiest to say, and I don't know a lot, it's hard to get hold of some real good papers right now that explain it all, because these are all preliminary results, so none of them have been published. And without peer review, you have to take what you hear with a grain of salt. I think because Fauci and some of the people in FDA are saying these look good, I'll go along with them. They're the experts. Mm -hmm. But Moderna and Pfizer claim that their vaccine is 95% effective. In other words, of the people who got the real vaccine instead of placebo, only 5% came down with coronavirus. Now, we don't know if that number is going to get larger than 5% over time or even get smaller possibly, because we can't challenge them with the virus itself. What they did is they vaccinated these people and they gave placebo to an equal number of people. And who knows what was in the placebo? I haven't heard anyone say, but it was not the vaccine. And then they said, go live your life the way you normally do and let's see if you get a coronavirus infection. And a lot more people got infected with coronavirus on the placebo than they did on the vaccine. As a matter of fact, they're amazed at the high percentage of effectiveness. It's unheard of to have 95% effectiveness with a vaccine, especially when you've only been developing the vaccine for eight months. And so we buy into that, but then uh, AstraZeneca, Oxford came out and said, well, we had 70%. And that's still really good, good enough to accept and use as a vaccine, except for one drawback, which we won't hold against them because they're looking into carefully and trying to correct it. They had 3,000 people who, instead of getting the full dose on the first vaccine, only got half the dosage. Right. And then on the second booster, though, they gave them the full amount. And when they analyzed those people after two months, they found out that they had 90% effectiveness, which is outstanding. But when they looked at the 9,000 people who, instead of getting half the dose for the first one, got the full dose and then got the full dose in the booster, they only had 62% effectiveness. For some reason, the dose they thought they should have given in both shots was less effective than when they made a mistake and only gave half as much of the vaccine dose in the first shot. So they came out and said, our percentage is 70%. They took the average of the two and came up with 70%. Oh, so they have to answer. So they've got to rework <laughs> some of that. Yeah. But I think they're going to find that it's just as good. The difference between uh, Moderna, as I said, and Pfizer and uh, Ox uh, AstraZeneca Oxford is that Ox does AstraZeneca Oxford group is using older technology. And there's a disadvantage to that besides the results they got by making a mistake in their protocol. And that is the older technology takes more steps, so it takes longer to develop. Whereas the technology they're using with Moderna and uh, Pfizer is fewer steps and easier to pull off. So that's why theirs came to be approved, they put it up for approval sooner. Um, but I think that the Oxford vaccine ultimately will be as good. And as a matter of fact, it has one big advantage over the other two. The other two have to be stored at very, very low temperatures. You can't store them in a regular freezer attached to a refrigerator. You've got to have what labs have, ultra cold freezers. And the 
uh, AstraZeneca-Oxford vaccine, like all the older vaccines, can be stored in a low temperature freezer. And we're gonna have trouble treating people who live in underdeveloped countries in very hot climates if they all have to have the ultra cold because it's gonna be difficult to keep it ultra cold. And because again, as I said, the messenger RNA is very unstable at high temperatures. And high in this case means above freezing. Yeah. That's why they have to be frozen at minus 60 degrees centigrade or lower and there's still vaccines being they're still working on it. i mean there's still some oh yeah as a matter of fact i'm just talking about those three because that's all we hear of in america right now there's probably 30 to 60 companies i saw a list the other day and i just gave up on it and a lot of the companies working on it i don't recognize because what happens is big pharmaceutical companies do some of their own research but they contract out a lot of it and a lot of the companies that are developing these vaccines are biotech companies that are being paid by big pharma to do the initial workup to see if it's of value or not. Mm -hmm. Like you hear Pfizer's working with Bion. Bion Tech. Yeah. Yeah. Until this vaccine, I never heard of them. I'm not saying they're not good. I think it's great that they've got the vaccine, but it's a new company to me. But I don't keep up with the biotech companies either. Well, I think at, at one time I was reading that um, this method of the messenger RNA was something that was kind of in, in the works before the pandemic. Yeah, or at least more than 10 years. They just never, right. they, this forced them to work on it enough to get it to actually work. If I remember the facts correctly, Moderna actually started this vaccine for Ebola virus and just never got it. Oh, okay to fruition. So that's one reason they're so far ahead of everyone. They just modified it because they'd already been working out for Ebola. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. It's not the same vaccine because it's got coronavirus messenger RNA, but the principle and concept is exactly the same because Ebola virus is an RNA virus too. John, I think we've covered what I had put under myths about vac- the vaccine and vaccine. Um, one that hopefully we've been able to emphasize, or you've been able to emphasize to people that it won't, it's not COVID, it's not active, it's not going to make you sick. We're not going to be a situation, whoopee, um, I got my shot, no more masks, where everything goes back to normal because it's going to take some time to vaccinate all these people you know, one to two weeks to, to have immunity. And um, we're going to have some people that don't, that don't want to take it. We have- who, who don't want to take it? No. Well, let, let's, disease, right? let's, use, let's use as a jump off point, because I want to talk about herd immunity too, since it's yes. been uh-huh. misrepresented sometimes, particularly by... <laughs> yes. Yeah, our- I won't go into who, but anyway, including someone in England. So I'm not just picking on the American, but herd immunity... For people who don't know, what that says and is that if enough people have either gotten a virus, and this codes for anything though, but we're talking about viruses. So let's say got coronavirus before the vaccine became available and survived, along with all the people who get, take the vaccine, and they have to have both dosages. Getting just the first one and not getting the booster may not protect you well enough. Then if we can reach somewhere between 60 to 70% of the population either being vaccinated or getting it by natural means, then the chances of someone who isn't willing to take the vaccine is reduced remarkably. As a matter of fact, with all the people who won't take something like the measles vaccine right now, not them, unfortunately, doing it to their children, Mm-hmm. The, the only reason that more children aren't getting measles right now is because there's so many of us who are immunized, including children of parents who think having vaccines is good. We would like to see the number go even higher than 60, 70%. Let me give you an example. If we reach a level of 90% vaccination and or naturally occurring disease in people, then that means only one out of every 10 people in the population can get or is susceptible to coronavirus. If that one person is in a crowd, there's a good chance that not nine others are not carrying the virus because they've been immunized, either naturally or by vaccine. So they may not get the virus. 
And that's what's protecting all these children right now who haven't been immunized for measles and diphtheria and stuff. All the people who are immunizing their children so they don't meet it. Whereas if only 40% of the population becomes immunized or get it naturally, then you run into another problem. That means there's six out of 10 people who can still contract it. They're gonna pick up the virus somewhere. It's awfully hard to be in large crowds, even at home parties, without someone being there carrying it. And what they don't appreciate is you don't always know who's carrying it. The example I always like to use with my students when I taught is, listen, if you have flu-like symptoms and come to class, you probably infected me before I knew it, so don't worry about coming, come. But I'm going to stay away from you if I'm not sick because I can tell you're sick. Well, if you're an asymptomatic carrier, I can't tell. And so these people who aren't vaccinated are going to spread the virus to people who are non-immune. And some of those people are going to be immunosuppressed, and it will be very dangerous for them to come down with coronavirus. So everyone should consider for their own safety and the safety of others to be vaccinated. Another population that's going to be in trouble is the immunosuppressed. They're going to be exposed to people who um, haven't been infected or who have been infected. And they, they as you see, most, what, 40 or 50% or more of the people who die are immunosuppressed for some reason or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the sad thing is some people are immunosuppressed and they don't even know it. They said, well, I'm not worried. I'm healthy. Well, I'll tell you what, that virus is a selection agent. It'll tell you whether you're immunosuppressed or not. Uh, the people who are asymptomatic are the lucky ones. They don't have any underlying conditions, probably. Well, I think I'm, I'm worried about people not getting the vaccine, uh, you know, to protect our public health is because we haven't been concerned. I mean, as a, as a society, uh, I don't want to wear a mask. Um, I don't want to do this. I'm going to do what I want. And there's already, uh, there's a bill in Tennessee that you can refuse the vaccine for religious purposes. And also we have um, our leaders saying, well, we shouldn't have to get a vaccine. You can't force people uh, to, to get a, a vaccine. It's, it's, it's up to them. And I think, um, yeah, the, the thing is freedom and, and democracy and things like that. Um, but I, I think our public health, our concerns about the health of the public have really taken a, a hit. And I think it's, I mean, that's been the, uh, the, um, the thing behind our our pandemic, our crisis, we're the leader in deaths and exposures and, and things because uh, freedom has taken a little bit different turn, and that's the freedom to do what I want, yeah, not whether it affects you or not. So, so um, let's see. Well, I have not wanted to get into politics uh, on this discussion because it's it's. Um, very difficult, very upsetting, but I did want to say just one thing, um, the comments that the results and the approval for these vaccines were held until after the election. Um, but I just have to say, here's surprise. Um, not everything is political and scientists I would say are not political folks. They just want to do their work. Could you say that, John? Could you? I think on the whole, I mean, they're human, so there are a few who, but I think in this case, most of them are doing what they should be doing. They just want to make the discoveries and get it to the people. Uh, Because it's enough sometimes just to be the one, the leader in the publication for something. I mean, I would have been happy if I could have written up something about coronavirus (laughs) or not. But I don't have the big labs where you can do that kind of work. So I teach it instead of doing it myself. But yeah, I think that for the most part, the scientists are being open and honest about it. And I trust them. Uh, I'm sorry that there's so much political intervention from both sides in the issue, but particularly one that, because it makes it difficult for people to work the way they should. Right. Well, should be able to. At, at the beginning of this pandemic, uh, the Global Health Security Index, uh, which is a measure of readiness <clears throat> for health crisis, declared that the United States is gen- number one most prepared, and that the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, was respected around the world for sending help to fight infections. And here we are at the end. Um, well, close to the end. Not really the end, but a vaccine, I think, which, which is our goal. Um, 
uh, emergency physician at Baylor said that people used to look to the United States with a degree of reverence for democracy, for our moral leadership in the world, supporting science and using technology to travel to the moon. Uh, instead, he said, what's really been exposed is how anti-science we've become. You know, we're living in a society of misinformation at a time when we need uh, truth research and science more than ever. This misinformation has resulted in deep divisions politically and now is killing tens of thousands of Americans. The medical community and scientists, you know, aren't pulling off a giant conspiracy. You know, we're losing a generation of parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, not to mention a near collapse of our economy and exacerbation of inequality in health, wealth, and education. Um, get your vaccine when it's available. Do you have anything that you'd like to add, John? No, I think that pretty well covers some of the problems we're faced. That uh, we're living in a an anti-science uh, environment right now, I think, and, and it's kind of sad. I think scientists need to do more to state their positions, and I think we need to do a better job of educating people about what science is and what it can do and can't do. Uh, some of it's the failure of the scientists for staying locked up in their offices and not worrying <laughs> about what's going on. But there are more and more scientific societies, including the American Society of Cell Biology, that write and teach some of this stuff now to try and get it to people uh, I, I don't as a scientist all my life i don't understand it but i have to live with it anyway right well maybe we can um with the vaccine uh come crawling back <laughs> and i heard on the news last night that um uh, uh, um requests for information for medical school is is going up and it's the fauci effect and um, yeah, he's you know, a he popular went, person, with some people anyway. You know, he kind of went through a, a beating, apparently. He's um, so glad to be able to talk to people <laughs> again. I think he was, he was kind of put in one of those offices. But, um, but anyway, um, thank you so much, neighbor. Okay. I, I didn't realize that. you um, minored in biochemistry. So, um, yeah. John, I try to get... <laughs> We try to get our dogs to play together. Yes. And, um, but we need to try harder at that so we can talk about science out there on the, you know, the dog park. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> out on the soccer field, huh? Or <laughs> rugby field, it out. Rugby, I don't know what it is. But, um, but anyway, thank you so much. Okay, thanks for asking me. And information, you bet. Stay well. I will. Check out the Tennessee Holler and all of the podcasts. Make a donation to um, Tennessee Holler because we're funded by people.